This is Inside Berkeley. I'm Michael Keith Feldman. Our guest today is interdisciplinary artist, composer, and saxophonist Neil Leonard, artistic director of the Berkeley Interdisciplinary Arts Institute. Leonard is currently on the Fulbright Specialist roster, and in addition to his work at Berkeley, he's a research affiliate at the MIT program in Art, Culture, and Technology. Neil Leonard, thank you for joining us today for Inside Berkeley. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I like to think of the Berkeley Interdisciplinary Arts Institute as the Institute for Cool Stuff. But to get more specific than that, I'd like to ask you about some of the interdisciplinary projects your students have coming up. And maybe we could start with the upcoming collaboration between Berkeley and Emerson College on the project involving interactive lighting. Great. Um, as you know, when the Institute worked on the opening of the new building, the 160 building, we ended up with a collection of uh, 36 LED lights. They're architectural grade LED lights, and you can do some pretty amazing things with them. And this semester, we thought it would be really fun having worked in a kind of one-day performance in the front of the 160 building to do something that would have a kind of longer lifespan and a longer setup span as well. So we approached John Powell, who's a artist, a light artist living in Alston. And John and I went to the the Hurrit Inspector Gallery at Emerson College and spoke to Joe Kettner, who's the director. And Joe invited us to, invited Berkeley students to come and do four installations there in that gallery. Um, so we're working directly with the gallery um, curator, Joe Kettner and John Powell, to put this together. So I guess that's kind of the, the, um, the behind-the-scenes, how it happened answer. And I guess the other answer would be, or the other piece of this, the other part of this, is that in the Institute this semester, we have 14 students, and they've divided themselves into uh, groups of four, and they're building some really fantastic um, installations. One involves a harp. Uh, first, the harpist was thinking uh, many harpists. I think she's got it down to just a few right now. And the harp is actually in a really amazing uh, object in terms of how it interacts with lights. If you point architectural lights at a harp, you get these really incredible patterns on the wall. Um, the I don't know if I can put this into to words. I could show you a picture on my phone, but that doesn't help the radio audience <laughs> too much. Um, but we get these really beautiful, like cinema quality, um, you know, full color bandwidth projections, which are linked to the music that's being played in the harp. I think it it really, uh, Tanya Phillips is the harpist and she's one of the leads in that project. And when she saw this, even in uh, John Powell's studio in Alston, in a studio visit, we just tried this once. We turned on the lights, we put them through the harp and her mind was absolutely blown. I mean, she was thinking we need, we need first she was thinking we need video, we need a lot of lights, we need a lot of harps. And we got one harp, one light, tried it in the studio it was magical. The whole group was transfixed. So there's one piece involving, uh, I believe it's it's Tanya Phillips, Claire Lim, DeAnthony Wooten. So that's one installation. Another installation is a, a mylar room. It's a corridor, sort of like a corridor of mirrors with lights on one side. And I believe there's a live trumpet player involved in that installation as well. Uh, so they've really kind of been going wild. Um, 
making things. And John Powell has been hugely, he's been a real asset to have here at Berkeley as a visiting artist this semester because they get the opportunity to, you know, dream their dreams, think about what they'd like to do, and then they have someone with decades of experience doing public uh, installations with lights to kind of help them figure out practically, you know, what will work best in the gallery and how do we put this together. Right. And you mentioned John Powell's work on the Play the Building project. And for those who didn't see it or aren't aware of it, this was John Powell and yourself working with students to essentially wire a huge 16-story tower in the back bay of Boston to, you know, respond lighting-wise to what the musicians were doing on stage. It was really quite something to behold. And I think, you know, going out on the street while that was happening and just watching people looking up, being, what's going on here? It was really quite quite a uh, installation. So cool stuff, like we said. Um, now, in light of this year's merger that created Boston Conservatory at Berkeley, I understand your students are also now collaborating with conservatory dancers and creating music for some new dance pieces. Yes. Actually, the, the Institute has collaborated with BOCO since its inception. Um, we did a project there with a visiting professor named Richard Colton, which is a very ambitious project that used the basement, the theater, the the corridors, the stairwells. There were dancers in all those areas and live musicians in all those areas. That was a couple of years ago. Um, that was called Swerve. And more recently, since the, the, even at the time the merge was announced, I went to BOCO, I spoke with Kathy Young and Tommy Nesbitt, and the Institute seminar has been partnering with Tommy Nesbitt, or we've been, our class has been meeting together. So Berkeley students have to apply to join the Berkeley Interdisciplinary Arts Institute, and one of the reasons that they do is to work with you. So I'd, I'd like to get into some of your own work a bit. I had the chance to check out some of that work earlier this year at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts, uh, where you and your partner, Maria Magdalena Campos-Pons, uh, took museum visitors on a, uh, a multi-sensory uh, voyage, if you will, back to the, the height of the sugar trade. And this was an exhibit with blown glass sculptures and images uh, on the second floor of the museum. But beyond the visual, there were soundscapes, there was the, the smell of raw sugar in the air, and even the elevator getting up to the exhibit was in fact part of the exhibit. So c- can you tell us a little bit more about your, your work on this and the inspiration for it? Magda and I have been working together since 1988. Um, we've been married for most of that time. So it's a, it's a long-term collaboration. We've done projects every year, multiple projects every year. I can't count them. I don't know, 20, 30, 40, many, many projects, many performances. Um, so it's my longest-term collaborator. The interesting thing for us was to think of what's the connection between Massachusetts, Salem in particular, uh, which is where I was born. I was born in Cambridge. And Cuba, Matanzas, Cuba in particular, where my wife was born. And Salem and Matanzas had trade for many, many years. So sugar, for example, molasses, would come from Cuba to New England to be turned into rum. Uh, the wood for the rum barrels often came from Massachusetts. The cobblestones in Matanzas and Havana came from Gloucester. So there's this 
age-old trade history, which, is, of course, has been interrupted in the past 60 years by a trade embargo. Um, but we were interested in creating a work that kind of treated the museum as a port. And we used the freight elevator as kind of like a, a dock. It's, it's um, because the, the ports are of really... I guess I want to say this, that both in the United States and in Cuba, some of the most important music has come from port towns. New Orleans was a port town. New Orleans was actually um, owned by Spain at one point. It was Spanish territory that was administered in Cuba. So, you know, the, the, the city of New Orleans had people of French heritage, of Spanish heritage, of, um, of Northern European heritage, and we got this kind of musical melting pot there, which we could go on and talk about for quite some time. It's really amazing. Uh, in Cuba, the ports are where rumba was, was blossomed. And in this project, I wanted to spend some time in Cuba talking to people who worked in the ports and knew firsthand how music developed in the ports and then invite them to collaborate with us in the, in the sound part of this installation and help me build this sound for the gallery that was partially ambient. There were some saxophone sounds. There were some field recordings. There was sound of rum being processed, but also use the voices of some of these people. And we were fortunate to find a... 70-some-year-old, I think he's about 76-year-old stevedore, former stevedore, who went on to be a leading rumba singer uh, named Rafael Navarro. So we recorded him. Uh, we recorded a singer named Ana Perez. They both work with a group called La Moniquitos de Matanzas, which is a famous rumba group in Matanzas. But, you know, the thing which was really part of what was fun in the research phase of that project was spending time in the port of Havana, in the port of Matanzas, finding people who worked there and hearing their account of how they learned music as kids, you know, um, between the work of carrying sugar sacks, they would go, you know, in the shade of the trees and make music. Um, you know, when they're a little bit older, they would go to a bar and make music. So these dock workers congregated in this bar and this legendary band that's still in existence was born and they were willing to collaborate with us. So it was really kind of a spectacular experience. I didn't expect it to uh, kind of take on the life it did. Um, and in terms of what people experienced in the gallery, we created a, a, a sugar processing plant, a distillery, a sugar processing plant in the gallery made out of glass. And my feeling about that piece in terms of being a, a composer, or sound artist, is that, you know, when you think of glass, you know, glass is cold, it's uh, stiff, and it's beautiful. But in kind of envisioning this kind of monumental or huge uh, factory being built for the gallery, my thought was, well, there's a piece of Cuba that's missing. And that's really the, the way that the people are social, they're theatrical, and music is so rich and complicated and, you know, conveys so much 
in just a few sung syllables or just a few rhythms. I didn't want to have music that was very, very overtly rhythmic in the gallery because that would kind of set people to move their bodies through at kind of a dance pace. I didn't want people to kind of like quickly dance to the gallery. I wanted them to take it in slowly. It's more of a meditative environment. Um, it's a place to uh, you know, take things in and kind of be affected by the environment and, and have a kind of unique experience, which is different for every single person. But the music does a lot to set the, the pacing at which you can have that experience. So the sound, in my view, was this kind of like um, atmosphere that kind of entered at one side of the gallery and moved very slowly, maybe it took three minutes or so, four minutes, maybe actually longer than that, probably about five or six minutes, for elements of the sound to kind of independently migrate from the entrance to the exit of the gallery. There were eight speakers, and first you're hearing if when a sound enters, for example, say it's a voice of a person or a voice of two people. There were actually two people singing um, as kind of the kind of cornerstone sonic uh, you know, icon of this piece, um, you would hear them in the in the first two sets of speaker near the entrance, and then each time those voices appeared, they would kind of come back every minute or two. They would appear kind of further into the gallery until they had kind of migrated all the way to the exit. You know, so there were two men voices, there was a woman's voice, there was a sound of of liquid of rum in a distillery, there were sounds of the ocean, there were sounds of um, the saxophone reverberating, reverberating in a very, very, very live space. But all this sound kind of had emotion. Um, but what was really essential to me is to get, you know, glass doesn't have any dirt in it to me. You know, painting has more dirt than glass. Glass is very kind of pristine and clean and beautiful. At least that's the way I think of it. Um, but I wanted to get some dirt into the piece. I wanted to get some physicality and a body into the piece because you don't see images of people in the room. And then having those voices of these really iconic um, and wonderful singers like Rafael Navarro and Ana Perez, when you hear them begin a phrase, all of a sudden there's kind of humanity in the piece and a very kind of warm and social and kind of theatrical humanity in, in the room that you don't get otherwise. And we could have had pictures of these people, but it, that's not the way the piece was designed. And so my work was to try to, you know, I ran with that ball, you know. So they gave, you know, the way I saw it, like that was an opportunity for a way that sound could bring a character into the room. And... I guess every time I work with a with Magdalena or when I work with visual artists in general, I'm always looking for, you know, what can sound provide that the visual artist is either not doing or a visual artist incapable of providing because the arts have different, they, they touch us in different ways. And the sound of a human voice touches us in a way that is different than the, how we're touched by a painting or a photograph. It's, a, it's kind of a temporal uh, experience that is very, very, you know, uh, concrete. Whereas if I look at a painting, I might look at it for five minutes. I, look, may, look at, I may look at it for the blink of an eye. You know, it's the, 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 
the way that I experience or live with that painting in time is it may be in my house and I look at it every day. That's kind of variable. But sound has this very kind of concrete in relation to time. And it also, if we're using voice, it has this, it invokes people. You know, our, your voice, my voice, Raphael's voice, Magda's voice, every, everybody's voice really tells us so much about them that even just having the sound of, you know, three people in that exhibit kind of gave it another dimension. Yeah. So we talked a, a lot about the work that your students were doing at the beginning and, and now your own work. And tying all that together, I, I see that later this month, you and your students will be presenting a couple pieces, uh, Security Vehicles Only and Flagger Ahead at Experimental Intermedia in New York City. Can you give us a sneak preview of what to expect? Well, I could do more than give you a sneak preview. We'll perform these pieces on Sunday, uh, December 11th in the Fenway 22 building uh, at 4 p.m. It's, it says New Music by Amna, New Works by Amna Woolman is the name of the Facebook um, announcement. And I think that one of the key objectives of the Institute is not to get people to read articles on artists and see clips of YouTube of, of artists and artworks, but actually to get them in the room with the people who make these really incredible artworks. And they could be choreographers, they could be dancers, actually they could be the director of Jacob Pillow, Ella Bath, they could be the curator from Peabody Essex Museum, Trevor Smith. But we want to get people from different parts of the art world, different guilds in the art world, to Berkeley or get our students to them, but for our students students to have an interaction with them. It might be a discussion, it could be creating a new work, uh, and in this case, it's creating a new work. Amnon Woolman is a composer who I first met just after he received a PhD in composition from Stanford University. He was heading off to be the chair for composition at Northwestern. Um, I stayed in touch with him when he ran the Electronic Music Studio at Brooklyn College in New York, and now he's in Jerusalem. The piece that he's written for the students' flaggers ahead is a piece where they create, it's a performance piece essentially, but it's a performance piece to provoke our thinking about sound. And students create altars of their own design, and in these altars they assemble during the performance a collection of things that are really, that are meaningful to them, but are also intended to um, kind of evoke sonic thinking or imagination on the part of the audience. There was an artist who passed away in the last week named Pauline Oliveros, who I think she was about 80 years old, uh, uh, important composer, and she did a practice. In addition to concerts, she also did, was involved in a practice which she called deep listening, which could involve a concert, but it could involve something else. So I invited her to a class once, and the class is nine in the morning. And the first thing we did was basically a meditation. And in the course of this short meditation, it could have been 20 minutes, it was not extensive, what I realized was, you know, rushing to work, getting to class, make sure the artist is there, checking to see all the students are there, they've got their own time, I noticed this one's late, um, trying to make sure the, work, the artist is comfortable, etc. My mind is going. And when I'm thinking, 
I'm thinking of words. And I'm not thinking of print, printed words. I'm thinking of me saying something. All those th- thoughts are like chatter. Those are words that I'm imagining. I'm not speaking them. And after this meditation, what I said to Pauline was, you know, this is just nine in the morning. You know, <laughs> we haven't had the whole day to kind of like invade our, you know, occupy mm-hmm. our thinking or affect our thinking. Nine in the morning, I just realized that there's so much activity. And the you know, part of the meditation, which is kind of what meditation does in general, was to kind of, you know, listen deeply, breathe deeply, and be mindful of how you hear. So, you know, how we hear, what we hear, you know, what we imagine, how do, how does that affect artwork? Can you play with that in your artwork? Um, I saw that Jack DeJanette's giving a talk here. Uh, I saw, I remember vividly now, I didn't think of this till you know, you asked this question. I saw him play at the main line in Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, which would have been 1975 or so. He played a drum solo without touching a drum. I mean, he went through the, you could see his arms flailing, the sticks are moving, he's making faces. He didn't produce a note that we could, that came out of those drums. I mean, if I could imagine anything, it was like what I imagined, but he did that. So it's kind of uh, something that that kind of comes into artistic thinking and experimentation and discourse, which is, you know, what we anticipate, you know, what we imagine. And, and that's, you know, I would say even in Beethoven's Third Symphony, the Eroica, like the end of the first movement, like, you know, bang, bang, you know, how many times are you, is it going to strike the ending? It's sort of like this anticipation, the intention of what you anticipate. And, you know, he's kind of playing with your imagination. So he's kind of, you're f- kind of finishing the piece or trying to finish the piece, but the piece is finishing its, its own way. And there's kind of a tension between what you imagine and what it's doing. So this idea of our sonic imagination is, um, it's just, it, it's not something we do every semester, but because this is what Amnon does, we'll do it with him. Neil Leonard, you've given us some deep listening today. That's for sure. I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down for Inside Berkeley today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This episode was recorded in the Burn Studios at Berkeley and engineered by Diami Wilson. I'm Michael Key Feldman for Inside Berkeley. <laughs>